in verse 1. Just think, if it took us nine months, 11 months, to get through four chapters of Philippians, how long it might take us to get through 40 chapters of Exodus. You do the math later. Exodus 1 and beginning in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Jacob was already in Egypt. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Read verse 8 just as a teaser, a little bit of what will lead us to uh, next week, but it ends uh, this first section we'll look at this morning. As a child growing up, I didn't really read very much. And there were not very many books in our house, and I really had little interest in the ones we had. Now, the few books that I did read, I did so begrudgingly for school assignments, maybe like somebody else in this room. However, there was one book that I remember reading as a child for fun. It was possible, I found, that you can read for fun, and it opened up my imagination like nothing else. It made me dream about the ability to change my life situation, the possibilities that were out there, the excitement of a story well told. And you might be wondering, what grand novel is this? What classic work of children's literature? Well, the book was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Roald Dahl. And while I like candy as much as any other kid, it was not the endless amounts of candy that go to the winner that got me. It was Charlie. The fact that this poorest of poor kids was now the owner of a chocolate factory. His whole life changed for the better in an instant. And I thought as a child, mine could too. Good stories are wonderful in that way. And the book we are beginning this morning is an epic story. One author writes in the ESV Study Bible, Exodus is an adventure story par excellence. It features a cruel villain, Pharaoh, an unlikely hero, Moses, overwhelming disasters, the plagues, a spectacular deliverance, crossing the Red Sea, a long journey through the wilderness, a mountaintop experience, and a grand finale, the presence of God coming down to the Ark of the Covenant, filling the tabernacle with glory. The story features unexpected setbacks, unpredictable delays, magic tricks, and miracles, feasts and festivals, music and dancing, and many close encounters with the living God. This is in God's Word. And this we get, the next, we get to look at together. And being in Exodus for the next year and a half or so, we will be using the word story a lot. Sometimes when the word is used, it means something that is made up, like a fairy tale story or a bedtime story, a, a tall tale about something that really didn't happen or the facts are overly exaggerated, a story. But a story by definition is just a description of events that are connected, that can either be true or made up, imagined. Exodus is just that, a story, a connected series of events that God gives to us through a human author. That is true. We affirm here at Liberty that all of God's Word is true, that we wholeheartedly trust God's Word as just that. It's the Word of God. If God is who He says He is, then certainly His Word can be true, and really it must be true. We're not coming at Exodus with a critical glance, not really believing the events that took place 3,500 years ago. But we're coming to Exodus to know our God more, to grow in our trust of Him, and to see how God has worked with and for His people over the generations that have come before us. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 begins this way, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. 
of which Moses is one. In 2 Peter chapter 1, also talking about the inspiration of God's holy word, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's not no mere story that's made up. He goes on, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then a passage that is more well-known when we look at Scripture and its characteristics, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When we come to a story like Exodus, we begin to see fantastical events that often people will look and desire to debate and to act as though they didn't really happen or in that way. And yet fully trusting in God is who He says He is, and God's Word is from His own mouth through human authors by His Holy Spirit. We fully trust in these events that this is God's Holy Word written for us for a purpose. The Baptist Confession of 1689 speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit in regards to Scripture in chapter 1, paragraph 5, where it says, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the Church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable excellencies and perhaps perfections thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. We can do all of those things. But the authors of the confession continue, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. So fully trusting in Exodus as God's Word and the events here is accurate and meant for the equipping of God's people, we proceed this morning asking the Holy Spirit to work by means of His Word to confirm and affirm over and over again, that this scripture, this holy word of God was given for a purpose, was given that we might be changed by it, was given that we might in our lives give glory to God, that we might see these same events 3,500 years ago, that God worked in miraculous ways in the life of his people, and that might continue to shape us here today. As we continue to look this morning We'll proceed looking at the context of Exodus, the message of Exodus, and the purpose of God. You thought I was going to say Exodus. The content of Exodus, the message of Exodus, and the purpose of God. We'll look at those three things this morning. Number one, the content of Exodus. We want to look, sorry, at the context of Exodus. We want to look at its historical context. Where it fits historically, we've mentioned 3,500 years ago, but also where it fits within its literary context. We want to see this book within the rest of Holy Scripture. We've jumped into the middle of a story, the second book within a volume. We're not at book number one, and so being able to set this one within its context already, especially because Exodus picks up as though you're assuming, the author Moses is assuming you've read Genesis. He doesn't pick up clearly starting a new book, but he's picking up almost with a therefore. In light of what you've just heard, here are the names of those who have, the children of Israel who have moved into Egypt. And we'll look at that in just a moment. As we look at the historical context, we see there's always questions of authorship, dating, of any other evidence that gives light to the book and its dating of when we know this book to be written or what might be questions regarding uh, the date of events within the book. So the author for the most of history and most of church history all the way up until the late 18th century, so not all that long ago, 
uh, was not debated that it was Moses. And Moses is the author, we believe, of the whole first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And Moses being the author of them uh, in writing these books has not been debated except by uh, those scholars, critical scholars, who came later in the 18th century and brought it into question. There can be, when you begin to doubt God's word, can be a host of options that are opened up to you. And when you begin to read and study the background to the Pentateuch, you begin to see a whole host of bad ones. We just take God's word at face value uh, that Moses uh, has written these uh, words for us in the first five books of the Old Testament. While Exodus itself does not explicitly say Moses is the author of it, uh, we see that in other parts of the Old Testament, Moses having written these things, the words of Moses. As uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus will speak to the disciples of all the things that Moses and the prophets had written and seeing Moses as an author within the Old Testament. Now, the conservative dating for the Exodus is the 15th century BC. While we don't know uh, when the book itself would have been written necessarily, uh, we can at least date the Exodus most likely conservatively in the 15th century. And so again, roughly uh, 3,500 years ago, uh, we're looking at dates uh, so long ago in which God has worked amongst his people. That's the 15th century B.C., uh, where we get our date from. And some of that comes from archaeology, which is really incredible when we begin to look at God's word and see things that confirm what his word says. We believe it by means of its own uh, writing and what we know scripture to say of itself. We believe it as we read from the confession because the Holy Spirit moves us and affirms that this is God's word. But it's really amazing when we see uh, external evidence within archeological finds uh, and evidence within history that proves uh, and correlates with what happens within scripture. And so you have a stone slab in tw from 1209 BC that exists where you have an Egyptian pharaoh who mentions that he conquered the people of Israel in Canaan or the promised land. So a stone that exists from 1209 where he brags about how he almost wiped out the entire people of Israel. What is significant is that there, is, there were enough Israelites in Canaan for him to fight against, proving that by then in 1209 that they had made it to the promised land. They had made their exodus from Egypt and were already in the promised land with such a number as could fight against this Egyptian pharaoh. So the exodus had to have happened uh, longer, uh, further away from 1209, and so the 15th century, uh, they believe, gives enough time for the exodus to have occurred, the people to be established in the promised land, and then thus to fight against the Egyptians in 1209. You have other archaeological discoveries that support specific details uh, from the book of Exodus. There's a text called The Admonitions of an Egyptian Sage, and in it describes a series of disasters that sound incredibly similar to those of the biblical plagues. It's true that while there's no extra-biblical record of the ex Exodus itself, uh, this is not, though, hardly a surprise. In the Nile Delta, where, which is where the Israelites were living at the time, is too wet for many documents to have survived. But also, and more importantly, the Egyptians were a prideful people, a people who were not prone to give stories of their defeats in war. It isn't likely that the Egyptians would put on a stone slab the time that their whole army was uh, drowned in the Red Sea. Uh, they'll put on a slab when they defeated the Israelites, but not when they suffered a mighty defeat. And yet, that's what makes Scripture unique, isn't it? And not only here in Exodus, but in other places, Scripture gives uh, the ways in which God delivers His people in miraculous events, but it also talks real honestly of people's incredibly difficult uh, sin and the things that they have done, the things that don't put a good spin on Christianity, don't put it in the best light. And we actually can affirm Scripture's truth in the fact that it does tell the difficult stories, the stories that every other nation or people group or religion would keep out. The stories that you and I may squirm at when we read in the Old Testament. We see this in the book of Exodus. Uh, we see these uh, things true, excuse me, within all of Scripture. Lastly, there's a series of Egyptian military outposts 
that have been identified by archaeological finds along the coast between Egypt and the Promised Land. This would explain the logic of Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. And so it might have been that there are these military outposts of the Egyptians, and because of their placement, God moved his people in a more circuitous route, that he might keep them fully devoted to him as their redeemer and not desiring to go back to Egypt. That's some of the historical context, but also the literary context. Exodus itself, the word, is not the title given to the book within Hebrew, In Hebrew, the authors would give the title of the book the first few words. And so Genesis is not called Genesis in Hebrew. Uh, In Hebrew, it's in the beginning. So you can imagine when we look at Exodus, the first few words of Exodus are, these are the names. And in Hebrew, that's what the book is called. These are the names. And begins to look at the names that are given within the Hebrew Old Testament that speak not just of a title that's given to a person by their family, but also of character. You begin to see this in Genesis uh, already. You see some of the names that are given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and some of the meanings that Scripture gives to their names, but we'll see it also in Exodus, especially as it relates to God himself. Who is our God? Uh, Moses will uh, cry this out in his song that he gives as the Israelites come out of the Red Sea and they're delivered and they're on dry ground. Moses in Exodus 15 sings this incredible song of deliverance. And in the middle of that song, who is like our God? Who is our God? But God declares himself in Exodus to be the Lord. I am the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord's name is mentioned in several different places throughout the book of Exodus as we learn more about who our God is. This is why sometimes you'll have people who speak critically of the writing of the Pentateuch and they'll say a different writer wrote Exodus because they're using different names for God than Genesis does. We're seeing different names, different characteristics. It must be a different writer. There must have been different writers for different people, in fact, and pulled this Pentateuch together, and we can see their writings based on the names that they use for God. And I think what they fail to believe and what they fail to see is that our God is a multifaceted God, one that you cannot pin down with just one title or one expression of his character. Uh, but a God in which we as his people get the privilege to be able to know from his word that he reveals to us. This is God's self-revelation of himself. These are the names. Exodus assumes that you already know Genesis. If you've never read Genesis before, you'll have a hard time making sense of Exodus, right? It'd be like jumping into the second volume of a series without having read the first book. Now, in some series, that might not be all that difficult. A series like the Hardy Boys all kind of have the same theme, same thing, just a little bit different order, right? In the end, the boys always win and the bad guys always lose. Kind of know who the boys are and what's going to happen. But however, if you're reading a series that is dependent upon your knowledge of the first book, you're going to feel lost. You'll be entertained maybe, but you wouldn't fully know what is the storyline. Who are the characters? Where did they come from? What has happened to bring us to where they are? What was important that the author gave us and what was not? You can find your way, but you won't know how this part of the story began and its importance. If you have not read Genesis, you could be asking yourself the question, who are these people that are listed in the first seven verses? Who is Joseph? A lot is made of this one guy. Out of the 12, Joseph is mentioned more than the rest of them. Who is Joseph? Why does any of this matter? Verse 8, why does it even matter that a Pharaoh doesn't know who Joseph is? Pharaoh doesn't know who I am. What, what does it matter that he doesn't know who Joseph is? Joseph must be somebody of importance, but I'm not sure who he is because I've never read Genesis. And you would be in the exact same place as the king or Pharaoh in Egypt who doesn't know who Joseph is, ironically. Since this is not merely a novel, but it's God's story, God's revelation of who He is and what He has done and is doing in the world, then we need to give ourselves over to the context. 
as several people have said in the past, context is king. Without context, I'm going to quote D.A. Carson, who attributes this to his father, Tom Carson, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. All of a sudden, you can make the text of Scripture say whatever it is that you want. Uh, you could take a, just a passage, there was a, arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I don't need to know Joseph. Why don't you need to know who Joseph is? Because the Bible says he didn't know who Joseph was. So I don't need to know who Joseph was. Joseph is no importance at all to us. We only need to know Jesus. Well, that's going to be a huge uh, misreading of Scripture, right? But that's a silly one. But all of a sudden, we can take Scripture and make it mean whatever we want it to mean. We could take one passage here or, or a couple of different passages and all of a sudden twist together this theology that is not at all biblical, ultimately. You know, it comes from the Bible, and you can have a proof text that shows, see, this one passage says this, but then the question is, how does that one passage fit within the rest of the canon of Scripture? What does the rest of the canon say about that one passage? And being able to see context is king. So when we look at a book like Exodus, how do you get the context of an entire book? Well, we at least need to spend a few minutes in Genesis to get our bearings as we navigate a course for Exodus. So just briefly, just a few minutes here looking at Genesis. Genesis, much uh, the first couple of chapters looks at the creation. Looks at God who created all things. God who initiated the creation of all things. God made all things out of nothing and by the word of his power. God made man and woman the highest of his creation. This is seen in the amount of time and the speech that is given to the sixth day. This is why we see the value of all human life, because God sees the value of all human life. We see this as you look in day one through seven of creation. It begins to increase the language and the activity that is happening each of the seven days, each of the six days, excuse me, and then seventh day, God simply rests. But just quickly, briefly, in day one, God speaks, it happens. He sees it's good, and he names the elements. Day one, done. That's it. Day two, God speaks. He expands. Uh, the expanse divides things. He makes the expanse. Then God divides, and God names the elements. Day two, done. Day three, God speaks. God moves water and land. God names. He sees it's good. And then uh, something new. God speaks again. He hasn't done this yet. Now God calls dry land to form uh, bring forth plants, and they do, and God sees it as good. Day three is done. Day four, God speaks, states the purpose of creation. That's new. God makes elements. They are to rule over day and night. That's new, and God sees that it's good. Day four is done. Day five, God speaks. Let waters and sky be filled with swarming and flying things. Literally, swarm with swarming things. Fly with flying things. God creates, he sees it's good, and now God blesses. That's new. God blesses the creation, the swarming things and the flying things. He blesses them to be fruitful and multiply. Day five is done. Not every day on those six days does God end by saying it was good. You see, there's different elements of each day that God does. Not all the days are the same. And yet it's really clear as the days begin to build that we're building towards a crescendo, and the crescendo comes clearly at day six. As I put in my notes, the day one through five, there's only two lines at max for any of the days, just of the elements of what's happening. Day six, there's six lines, just of what's happening within the day. God speaks, day six. Earth brings forth creatures, then God makes the creatures. God sees it's good. God speaks again in the divine plural, that's new. Creation after our own image, this creation will have rule over all living things. Then what's new is there's a triad of poetry for God's creative work of man and woman. That's really new. Then God blesses them. And then for the very first time, God speaks to his creation. He commands them to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue, have dominion. He gives them every plant on the earth to eat as food and sees it's all very good. Clearly, we've just entered the climax of the rest of the week because day seven ends it all, and he rests. The climax comes, and then the goal is day seven when he rests. 
Right now, we're in the midst of, if we could say it, in the creation week, we're in day six and have been forever, right? The climax, man is created, we're all here. There's creation, fall, redemption, and what comes next? Restoration or rest. So we're longing for the goal of all creation, which is to rest with our God. And so in the midst of all this, God creating, he creates man into his own image. He does all of this stuff for them, and guess what they do just a few chapters later? They say, "Mm, not good enough, We'll, we'll make our own way here, thanks. Hang on a second. I just pulled you from the dust and breathed life into you, and you're going to tell me what you're going to do? The audacity. Do I need to remind you? You are dust, and from dust you have come, and to dust you will return. And man says, hey, thanks. We really do appreciate all that you've done for us, uh, but we're gonna, we got it from here. So man sins. He listens to a serpent who's a created object anyway uh, instead of God, and man dies. All mankind dies from then on as heirs of Adam. There's pain in childbirth, pain in work, pain in relationships. Relationships with God, relationships with one another. So relationships are strained now. There's a usurping of roles, a desire to rule each other wrongly. God, who used to walk with man in the cool of the day, is now distant, and man is kicked out of the garden. And yet, there is still hope. Early on, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there's still hope that the seed of the woman who will come will bruise the head of the serpent and have his heel bruised. It's vague hope, really slim chances that it's going to work out, if it's all looking from our perspective, but still that hope is that not all is lost, that we have not seen the last of it yet. So we see creation in Genesis, we see the fall in Genesis, we learn about Israel in Genesis. The God who gives hope is the one who has made Adam and Eve. The God who called them to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth and have dominion. He's the same God who walked with Adam in the cool of the day. The same God who warns Cain not to be angry with his brother. The same God who saves Noah and his family from death. The same God who continues the seed of the woman through horrible sin and tragedy. From Adam, we get the line of Seth. From Seth, we get Noah. From Noah's son, Shem, we get Abraham. From Abraham, we get Isaac. From Isaac, we get Jacob, who has his name changed to Israel because there's meaning in names. From Israel or Jacob, we get 12 sons, who are the names given at the beginning of Exodus. All of that happens in Genesis. These are not just relatives with a story, but they are God's people. As he chooses them to be a part of his story. He chooses to write his story of redemption through them. Notice it is always God who draws a new character into the storyline. Whether that is Adam by creation or Abraham by selection, it is always God's initiation. God speaks promises to Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in Exodus, we get to see if God is a God who keeps his promises or not. Who is like our God? What kind of God will he be? Genesis tells us that he is a creating God, a gracious God. He didn't fully wipe out mankind in the flood, but he saved eight. We see that he's a covenant-making God. It is God's promises that he has made to Israel that forms his relationship with them and gives them a hope for the future. The promise of a seed seems on the brink of failing so many times How many times do you read through Genesis and see this patriarch's wife is barren and can have no children? We see it even more so in the rest of Scripture. The odds are getting slimmer. What was a vague promise in Genesis chapter 3.15 is hanging on people being able to have children, continuing to be fruitful and multiply. Because the promise is given to Abraham, I will make your descendants like the stars of the heavens. You know, Abraham for so many years is looking at God and going, "Mm mm-hmm, heard this before. I have no child, and you're telling me a servant is going to be my heir. And God comes and speaks to him and reminds him again and again of the covenant promises of God that continue to boost our trust in who God is and what it is he will do for us when he promises. Wives of patriarchs are barren, cannot have children. Didn't God know that when they got married? Don't you think God would have said, hey, you see that girl at the well? Don't marry her. She can't have children. Marry this one instead. 
But God knows exactly what he's doing. And often in Genesis 1 through 11, years ago when we preached through those chapters, we would say God loves to write straight with crooked pencils. And now in Exodus, we can talk about the God who loves to work in circuitous or crooked paths to bring his people straight to redemption. A God who loves to work by means of different paths, difficult and hard circumstances that ultimately he's working to redeem you, to love you, to show you the fulfillment of his promises to you. Because ultimately the goal is not to make you a straight pencil going down straight paths, but ultimately his goal is to lead you to his glory and to his presence forevermore. However we get there, every single one of us will turn back and look at the end of all time when we stand face to face with Jesus and thank him for all, from whom all blessings flow, that we are there in his presence forevermore. Thankful for the path he brought us. Thankful for the difficulties we faced. Because ultimately they continue to let us let go of what this world had to offer us and cling more closely, more tightly to Jesus. At the end of Genesis, God's people end up in Egypt because of another horrible, difficult circumstance. The land of milk and honey, Canaan, has become a barren wasteland. It's all dried up. Famine has wiped out everything. The people of Israel end up in Egypt because Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. Quite another difficult circumstance in life. Many of his brothers wanted to kill him, and the nice thing was that they ended up selling him to some traders who were on their way to Egypt, kind brothers. But God prospers him so that he becomes second in command under Pharaoh. God sent Joseph ahead of his family to preserve life. And when his brothers meant it for evil, Joseph says to them again and again, God meant it for good. God brought me here to save your lives. And ultimately, we can see from the story that God brought Joseph there to actually fulfill his covenant to his people, not just to save their lives. But brothers and sisters, God brought Joseph to Egypt to save your life and to save my life. Because later we see in the scriptures that out of Egypt, God calls his son. Out of Egypt, God brings his son to be our redeemer, to save us from our sins, from our own enslavement to sin. Israel moved to Egypt with his sons and their families and as we read here in Exodus, and we read this also in Genesis, but these first few verses give us this transition that there are 70 people in all. The people of Israel started with Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. And only two generations later, there are 70 of them. So we've looked a little bit at the context to give us a, a bit of getting our bearings to get to Exodus. But let's look at the message of Exodus. If we were being able to summarize and give a theme for Exodus, what would it be? Uh, Forty chapters that go through all the things that we read of this epic story of all that God has done for His people Israel. Many themes have been given by pastors and commentary writers for the book of Exodus. Some of those are knowing God, the God who makes Himself known, uh, the absence and presence of God. One author gave a longer one, God works sovereignly to save a special people for his own glory. Or someone else said, saved for God's glory. That's the theme of Exodus, or just simply trust and obey. Exodus 15, 11, I alluded to it earlier, where Moses says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. You've just redeemed us from a people, from a sea that wanted to engulf us. You have delivered us for your own glory. Who is like you? How can we explain you? There is no other God that is near to being who you are. Over and over again, we see the character of God in Exodus. As God makes himself known to Moses and Aaron, We'll see that God shows himself to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. He'll reveal his power to save his people at the Red Sea. He teaches his people that he is to be obeyed through the law that he has given them. And yet he dwells even amongst his people in the tabernacle. 
I love the section at the end of the book where it talks about the tabernacle. And there's, there's a portion there where it can be somewhat frustrating to read because it completely reduplicates itself. And you say, what is the point of him telling us not only all the details of the tabernacle furniture and tapestries and all that stuff, but to tell us twice in the same book? The interesting thing is what comes in between those two repetitions of the tabernacle is the incident of the golden calf. And all of a sudden, I think that you look at this scenario where God tells, this is where I'm going to dwell with you. And this is going to be this tabernacle that, that's a model of the whole world. And as you get closer to me, my glory shines, and I will be with you, and I will be your God, and I will bless you. What happens after that? The people say, yeah, we think we want to make a cow out of gold, and we want to put it on a stand, and we want to worship that because that brought us out of the Red Sea. The, the, the absurdity of the whole thing. And God could easily have said, fine, have at it. Let him be your God. Sayonara, I'll pick somebody else. But what does God do? He repeats exactly what he has just said. He goes, no, 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 no. you don't get it. I'm still going to come down. I'm still going to be your God, and you will be my people, and we're going to dwell together. Because ultimately, in the end of the day, God's a covenant-keeping God. He doesn't leave it to the people to say, yeah, we want you. We think you're good enough. We like you. As long as you kind of do to us what this cow can do for us. Because this cow obeys everything that we tell it to do. Stand. Stay. Steady. We like that kind of a God. A God that we can control. A God that we can tell what to do. We don't want a God who's going to put demands on us. And all of a sudden, I think God reminds them of the beauty of the tabernacle that's coming that he's going to dwell with us. Let us come to Exodus, hungry to know our God and his ways, desiring to go deeper into who he is and what that means for us as his people. These are not just stories to read and be amazed at, although you will, but they are for our instruction to be applied so that we can continue to know God more and more and grow in our trust of him. Paul writes this exact same thing to, to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Beginning in verse 1, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has, has come. So for our instruction, let us learn from what it is that we will read, not seeing merely stories and the fantastical nature of them, but seeing Christ who loved and redeemed us and desires us to obey him and our hearts growing in our trust of him. We will see in the series that the accident event comes up all through scripture. It is the primary act of redemption that gets mentioned again and again in the history of Israel, in the life of God's people, even in the New Testament. And we'll make note of that as we walk through the book these next several months. But thirdly, let us look at the purposes of God. Uh, we've seen the context, we've seen the theme, uh, some of it, obviously there's more that is left out, but the context of Exodus, the theme of Exodus, and the purposes of God. Two passages that are alluded to here in our text of seven verses this morning. You saw that in verse number six, uh, verse seven, excuse me, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew, and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is the command that God gave to them in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. The command he gives to humanity. God blessed them. God said to the man and to the woman, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
What are the purposes of God? First, that God will bless his people for his own glory. When God says to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, to not only have children, but also to in the filling of the earth and the subduing of it is to bring it under God's dominion, to make it in a way that is not just a world in which you've populated, but because we follow after God, that there is a Godward ethic, a Godward people that are subduing the earth, a Godward people that are having dominion over all things. A Godward people whose eyes are fixed on who God is for us, not merely just walking in stride with the world and its culture, but being able to say God is our God and we follow after Him. We don't have to follow after all the other gods that this culture will follow. Our hearts are tied to Christ and He is our God and God will bless His people for His own glory. God will be the one who multiplies them, who allows them to be fruitful. We saw that in Genesis as there is a barren wife and all of a sudden she's able to have children. And God allows her to be fruitful and sometimes for just a time and then He closes up her womb again. But God is the one ultimately who brings fruitfulness and blessing Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, he brought him outside, he brought Abraham outside and said, as Abraham is struggling to believe the promise, and he said, God says to him, look toward heaven, number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. How does God know how the offspring of Abraham will look? That it will number more than the stars in the heaven? Because it's God who blesses his people. God who blesses his people with life. Psalm 72, verse 18 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Using the same language of filling, but here filling it for his glory. God's people are not merely just to have children, to procreate, to be fruitful and multiply but they're called to do so for the glory of God, the glory for which all things, which we have been created, that all would see that this is very good for God's glory. God will bless his people for his own glory, whether that is by taking them to Egypt to save their lives, whether that is by having their, their wife be barren, whether that is by choosing the younger son over the older son, whether that is by testing their faith to sacrifice their only son, but is God blessing his people for his own glory. And here God is blessing Israel. They are multiplying, growing exceedingly strong. They are fruitful and increasing greatly. We see a God who is leading his people through crooked, crooked paths to accomplish his purposes in their lives, taking the route with turns and detours, not the most direct path to teach us and help us continue to trust in him, to know him by name and to trust in his character. God will bless his people for his own glory. But there's also another text that this passage here in Exodus 1 through 7 alludes to, and that is Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 is the Abrahamic covenant where God makes his promise to his people where he selects one person from the line, the seed of the woman. He selects this one, Abraham, and he makes a promise with him. And in Genesis chapter 12, it says, Go from your country and your kindred, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God blesses his people for his own glory, but here God blesses his people to reach the nations. Notice the promise that he gives to him is for land, seed, and blessing. I will give you a land, I will give you people, and I will bless you. And those who bless you will be blessed, and those who don't bless you, who curse you, will be cursed. But then he says, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So when we begin to see Israel moving and they're coming into Egypt and they'll leave Egypt and go through the Exodus and into the wilderness wanderings and all of that, as you see this people group moving, it's not just a people group who need to feed themselves and take care of themselves for their own selves, for the promises of God to be fulfilled to just Israel, which are true, but it's also for the nations, 
You and I have received the blessings of Jesus, the promises of God to his people because of the blessing, the promise that was given to Abraham and to Israel. It's not ultimately an end only for Israel, but through Israel that God is going to bless the nations. How does he do that? He does it by the seed of the woman, the one who comes who is Jesus himself, who is born of the nation of Israel, but ultimately is a blessing to all of the world. And so you and I have been blessed. We have been reached as the nations, but God will continue to bless his people to reach the nations. You and I have been called. As Jesus ascends into heaven right before he does so, he gives the great commission to his people. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. To do what? So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do this work until I come. But all authority has been given to Jesus, and he tells you to go to all people groups to all nations, so that as we read, and we might know the passage in Revelation, uh, but where we see from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, people who are falling down and worshiping the lamb that was slain. God's promise in Genesis 12 will be fulfilled, excuse me, has been fulfilled already in the person of Jesus, and it ultimately will be fulfilled when people from every nation are bowing before the Lord. God will bless his people to reach the nations, that's Israel's call and command to take the God that they're learning about to the nations, and that's our call and command as well. God will bless his people to reach the nations. This is why one author, in labeling his book on Exodus, says the God who makes himself known, known not only to Israel, but through Israel to the nations. What is it that we do when God has blessed us we keep it amongst ourselves. We continue not to tell people about the salvation God has given to us and the ways in which he has blessed us, or do we share that with others? Are we intentional to make sure that God is blessing the nations through his people, through the church? God will bless his people to reach the nations. God will bless his people for his own glory. And thirdly, God will bless his people, as we've said, ultimately in Jesus. I'm going to read this from Philip Graham Ryken. In many ways, he says, the Exodus sets the pattern for the life of Christ. Listen to these ways. He points, sees Jesus in Exodus. Like Moses, Jesus was born to be a savior, rescued from his enemies at birth. He also had a sojourn in Egypt. For it is written, out of Egypt I called my son. Like the children of Israel, Jesus passed through the waters of baptism also like the Israelites who wandered in the desert for 40 years, Jesus went out into the wilderness for 40 days. Upon his return, he went up to the mountain to give the law, much as Moses brought the law down from Mount Sinai. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration talking with Moses and Elijah, they were talking with Jesus about his departure, or the word there in Greek is exodus. That is to say, they were talking about his crucifixion and resurrection when he would pass through the deep waters of death to deliver his people from their bondage to sin and take them to the glory land. This explains why Jesus was crucified at Passover. He was the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Many of the words in the, New, in the Old Testament used to describe the exodus from Egypt, words like ransom, redemption, and deliverance, are the very words the New Testament uses to describe Christ's work on the cross. What all these connections with Christ show is that Exodus is not a story of salvation, but the story of salvation. Israel's deliverance from Egypt anticipated the salvation accomplished once and for all in Jesus Christ. We look at the redemption that is given to Israel in the Exodus, and we look at that and see how God will redeem his people in Jesus, and ultimately God will redeem his people for all eternity. Ultimately, Exodus helps us to know our God. The God who makes himself known in this book is the God that hopefully as God's people, we desire deeply to know intimately. That is my prayer as we walk through this series. And a question that I hope that you might be able to ask yourself, do I desire to know God intimately? Do I desire to know him from his word? Now, I can know a lot of things about who God is. But do I desire, even if what I learn about him makes me uncomfortable, do I desire to know God intimately from his word? And question number two, am I willing to be changed by that? 
Am I willing to let the Holy Spirit, who works through the Scriptures to confirm this is God's Word for us, am I willing to let that Scripture change me? Am I willing to let God, by His Word, change me? I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to move directly into our time of the Lord's Supper this morning. Our Father, we ask for your help this morning. As we look at the theme of redemption and and walk through uh, lots of things, historically, literary features within a, a book, and our beginning here in a new journey looking at the character of uh, your character, your name, who you are from your word. Father, we ask that you would help us. Would you take the things that we think we know, and would you confirm them from your word, or would you remove them if they're not from your word? Would you continue to help us be a people who are willing to be shaped by what your word says? Uh, to put our trust in who you are as revealed in the text of scripture. And that, Father, we would be willing to come and regularly repent of the things that we have thought wrongly of who you are and of what you've done. And help us in this series, help us as we maybe read Exodus on our own even and preparing for each Sunday. That, Father, in your word, you would continue to uh, arrest our attention. Give us delight in your character and help us to trust more deeply in who you are. Show us again and again who you are in your character through your word. Help us to see the words of Holy Scripture and desire to apply it by the work of your Holy Spirit. Father, it seems so simple. We read the word, we'd be changed by the word, desiring to know you more, worshiping you as we read the word, yet it can be so difficult. Because just like the people in the Old Testament, we want to be able to say, no, thank you. I'll make a God of my own doing. Thank you very much. We want a God that fits in a nice, tidy box. Not an all-powerful God who oversees all things, commands his people, and says this way is the only way. So, Father, would you keep us bowing in submission to you as we look into your word, changing us by your spirit. We ask this, and we pray that you would uh, bless this next few minutes as we go into the supper. We are fed by Christ himself from these elements. We ask that you would bless it, that you would encourage us, strengthen us from the nourishment we are about to receive. And as we sing songs of redemption and of glory, that you would continue to strengthen your people in your character and in your actions for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.